Hello and welcome to Late Night with Father Kelly. It is actually 12.08 a.m., so I guess it's early morning with Father Kelly, but this is how I roll. It's just what happens when you, well, honestly what happened is that Sunday Mass, great, important, uh, but also tiring, and by the time I rest a little bit, had dinner, you know, kind of got around doing other stuff, rallied, made some notes, that began at 11.15, so here we are, a little bit past midnight doing some recording, but I'm a night person, so this is my time of day. Uh, we're doing it again where I'm going to post this on YouTube hopefully as well, but also got the, uh, so that's the lapel mic here, but also got the uh, computer recording for podcast purposes, same thing on both ends. Um, much to my surprise, it worked pretty well last time, so we're going to try this again. Um, just for context, uh, this is in the, I guess, the guest room of the rectory. Uh, back on the wall behind me is a uh, something I did in architecture class way back in college, and uh, to my right over here on the wall is um, a blanket that I got for uh, doing a Native American funeral. Never done one before. I, I went to the uh, we're at the graveside especially, and uh, we were I concluded the graveside service, and I was about to leave. And no, 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 Father, come back. We have something for you. Okay. And out of a blanket, out of a bag, rather came this blanket. So uh, it's beautiful, honestly. Uh, so got it up in here. Uh, got to show it off somehow. It really seems too nice to use and you know let the dog lay on. Maybe uh, the dog gets on the bed, so wouldn't want him to be laying on the blanket. So I put it on the wall to uh, share it with you guys. I want to share some things, um, both my homily from this weekend, but then other notes that have to do around with that. Uh, now, some of these things I should have uh, made notes on earlier. Uh, I'm trying to get into the habit of when I think of these things, write them down at the time or even record them at the time so that I'm not having to try and dig them up out of my brain later. But it is what it is. And so if I do this enough now, I'll be like, I should write that. I'll get maybe better writing things down. We'll see what happens. Anyways, so this weekend, I had a chance to sneak up and attend a little community theater uh, in Enid. Now, I'm about to talk about the things in the show somewhat critically, but it's not actually a critique of uh, the writer, producer, the director of the play, and especially not any, not any critique of the kids that are in the play. They did a fine job. You know, it's just like talking about literature made me think of some things. You know, this is not critiquing, you know, it was a kid's theater show. Like, it's not meant to be a philosophical treatise. I understand that. Um, but these are some things that I that I thought of. And the homily for this weekend uh, is around that. So let me uh, share with you my Sunday homily, and uh, then we'll go from there. And I'll kind of expand upon that. In the year 455, in the kingdom of Britain, a very special baby was born. He was so special that he had, he had to be protected more than normal because there were great plans for him. But it was also essential that it not be known who he was, not yet at least. He was therefore taken and given to the care of a wise old man until the boy should become old enough to fulfill his destiny. The boy was raised by this wise old man and taught all kinds of important things. The old man gave him mystical knowledge from old books. He studied language and science and all of the great things that a great man needed to know. Finally, in the year 470, he was ready, He was ready, though even he didn't know yet what it was that he was ready for. The great Archbishop of Canterbury 
hosted a tournament in London of jousting and fighting where there'd be all sorts of games and festivities. But the purpose of the tournament was a plan to find the new king for Britain because they'd been without a king for quite some time. But then suddenly, something miraculous happened, something incredible. There appeared a large stone holding a sword in the courtyard of the cathedral with an inscription that whoever could draw the sword from the stone was chosen to be the rightful king of Britain. It, of course, then happened that this very special boy, who is the main character, is the one who is able to draw the sword from the stone. He becomes the king, and all bow down to him because of the authority of the sword, Excalibur, that he now holds. This story, of course, is the origin of the famous King Arthur, was what I saw in the community theater. But I wanted to share it because it has to do uh, with the same theme of the gospel today, that is, in authority. That is, the theme of authority. In the story of King Arthur, there are a number of layers of authority. First is the authority of the author themselves. Have they told a true story? Can we trust them? Then there's the authority of the characters. Who is this old man? Why is he the one whom the future king is entrusted to? And finally, what makes a king anyways? Where does that authority even come from? The story of King Arthur is not literally true. In fact, in this rendition of it, uh, the dates given are not even possible. In the years of the late 400s, in, there was no London to speak of. It had been a, um, a Roman city in the, in, you know, around Christ's time, and well, shortly thereafter, but had been abandoned by the 2 and 300s, and wasn't a city again properly until the 800s, so there was no London to go to. But, you know, okay, fine. And, well, also there was an Archbishop of Canterbury, because St. Augustine of Canterbury didn't come to Britain until almost the year 600, so there were no Christians, and especially, or maybe maybe a few, but there was no cathedral in Canterbury. There was no archbishop there in the year 475. So, a little dodgy there. Uh, then we have the old man character. He is wise, but his wisdom is portrayed as coming from old books and magic stones. But he does show great humility and a desire for justice, so there are some things in his favor. Then, of course, there's the king and the sword. Through a series of events, Arthur draws the sword from the stone, and all bow down to him in the sword. He has authority because he wields the sword. Let's now compare it to the gospel, though, both in you know, scripture in general and the readings in particular. We have the gospels themselves through the church, who traces back the time of Christ himself. They're not something just made up a thousand years later. You know, there was no one writing the tales of King Arthur in the year 500. They came much later. We also have a wise old man in the scriptures. In this case, Moses from the first reading. But where does he get his authority to become a prophet? It's not from any magic or old books, but from the Lord himself. The Lord calls Moses and gives him his words and commands to speak. Anything Moses speaks and does for the people is not from his own self, but from the Lord, what the Lord has given him to do. And when he promises in the reading to send a new prophet, for a new prophet to follow him, he will fulfill that same promise, that the new prophet will speak with the words of God. Then there's the main character, Jesus himself. 
he certainly is a king. But is he a king like Arthur who gets his authority from somewhere? Is there some device that changes him from a normal person into a special person? No. Jesus is not like King Arthur. He doesn't need a special tool to be given authority. He has had it always from the beginning, from before the beginning, rather. He is the Son of God and God himself, who was already present when the world was made through his hand. Therefore, he has all the authority he could ever possibly need already. He doesn't need old history books of mystical things. He is history itself. He doesn't need magic stones or magic powers. He is power itself. He doesn't need to have some convoluted process through which he seems to accidentally stumble upon his role, as King Arthur seems to do. No, he has it from the beginning. Therefore, when the people in the synagogue are amazed at the healing of the man with the unclean spirit and wonder about the source of his teaching and authority, perhaps they think they are experiencing a wise old man with clever words and magic tricks, both like that did exist in, in Jesus' time. But really it is the Son of God who needs no magic, no clever tricks or conveniently placed swords and stones. He is authority itself because he is God. Yet the whole story should make us ask, how do we, how do we recognize authority? Do we, in our lives, see Jesus' power, knowing he is the Son of God and yield to his authority as we should? Or do we instead, in a sense, give away that authority to the thousands of other things in life that are trying to claim authority over us? Is Jesus our Lord and King? Or is there someone else with clever words, shiny weapons, or mystical background that we follow? To borrow the words of St. Paul from the second reading, I am asking you this for your own benefit, not to impose a restraint upon you, but for the sake of propriety and adherence to the Lord, without distraction. In the story, King Arthur draws the sword from the stone and starts his royal authority as the savior of Britain, the ideal king whom all bow down to. Arthur is not real, but Jesus is. He has no magical sword, but he does have a cross upon which he died for our sins. As the Son of God, he has all the authority he will ever need. That's the homily, but I want to add a little bit more about that, more things that are more casual thoughts, if you will. Um, it was interesting to watch, and uh, you know, the show was perfectly fine. It was a very enjoyable play. These are just some things that I thought of. Um, you know, I'm not saying it should have been changed to, to accommodate this sort of stuff. That would have made no sense, but just some ideas. Um, it was interesting to to see the spiritual authority of Merlin uh, throughout the play. Uh, as I mentioned, Merlin's the wise old man, right? Um, he has this weird, not weird, he has this um, interesting kind of syncretism of his authority. Because he does have, in some ways, you know, uh, virtue and justice and uh, a humility about him. Um, but also he has uh, magic and, you know, dust and spells and, you know, stardust and things like that. Um, but then he also talks about God and the divine plan. So there's the, there's this mixing and mingling of um, you know magic, you might say, 
and Christianity. And it all, you know, there's, there's, not, there's no conflict there. They are presented as going together. Uh, it's something that, if you ever read Don Quixote, uh, that book about the guy who jousts with uh, windmills, which is, that's like page two, by the way, of like 800-page book. I've not finished the whole thing, but sidebar. Um, those stories are actually making fun of these chivalry stories from uh, the King Arthur genre. Uh, Don Quixote is a satire, actually, on the um, chivalry, knights in shining armor uh, genre of literature. But they make fun of that uh, weird convolution of uh, mystical, pagan-type, obviously non-Christian stuff, with Christianity at the same time, without blinking an eye. Just an interesting thing. Um, Another throwing together two different things. Uh, the stone of power that Merlin has, I think it gives to Arthur eventually in the play. Uh, on the stone, I think it says something to the effect of uh, believe in yourself and be not afraid. Okay, good, fine words there. Uh, definitely coming from different different angles, though. Believe in yourself. Uh, you know, we say that kind of stuff all the time, but that's a modern invention. People didn't say that kind of thing back in the past. Um, the idea of the individual didn't come about, I mean, people you know, knew one guy from another, that's not what I mean, but uh, the idea that you know, I'm an individual and I determine the things that are real, you know, I, I determine who I am, is a relatively new idea in the history of humanity. Uh, you know, the Enlightenment and people like Descartes are the one, you know, I think therefore I am, that guy, uh, are the ones who brought that to the front in the way that we're used to now. Uh, before you were a member of a community, which is a more Christian way of being, you see yourself as part of the whole. So it's interesting that ha- that the stone of, the stone of power has believe in yourself, which is a very modern kind of idea, followed by be not afraid, which is what Jesus says the most in all of the scriptures. So you have this combination of a uh, a modern sort of secular idea with a deeply scriptural idea. Uh, speaking of scripture or the you know, faith and non-faith things, I I kind of had a shaking of fist moment during the play because towards the very end, when Arthur holds up the sword in victory, uh, everyone bows down, everyone kneels down. In fact, genuflex, uh, even the archbishop, who's one of the characters, and I'm like, come on, man, don't genuflect to the sword. You're, you're the one who's supposed to recognize that God is more important than a king and the sword. Ah, again. Children's play, I get it, but it was just one of those like, oh, come on, man, what are you doing? Um, so, enjoyable play, you know, kind of a fun uh, di- dichotomy between uh, two different worldviews sort of mashed together and to make a medieval context, so it was sort of like magic and adventure in there, too. An interesting thing. On the way home, I was thinking about this stuff and uh, authority and you know, how I was going to tie it into my homily that also had to do with authority. And I stopped at Sonic. And as I pulled up, I noticed that there were some, you know, listless boys in the in the table area out there. Didn't think much of it. Like, you know, Saturday afternoon, you know, not a big deal. Um, they're allowed to do that on Saturday afternoon. But uh, as I see the car up coming, I hear her uh, yell to them, clean up this mess or you'll never be allowed back to hang out at our tables again. Wow. Okay. So she comes to one car and she comes to my car and uh, she comes to the car. I kind of gave a little, you know, sort of 
wow, good for you for telling them off. Because I presume she had a good reason for that. She goes, yeah, well, they ordered 20 ketchup packets just to eat and then left them on the ground. I was like, oh, yeah, that's definitely a problem. Um, I mean, the ordering the 20 ketchup packets part is actually normal. Like, you know, they're, they were probably 12, 13-year-old boys. They do weird stuff like that. Whatever, fine. I don't care about that part. But the fact they threw them on the ground, like, and of course they didn't pay for the ketchup packets. So the Deer Sonic employees put up with them to give them 20 ketchup packets. Like, come on, guys. Throw them away at least, right? So it would be easy to just be like, ah, those kids, you know, rah, rah, yell at them and how terrible they are. But I thought, you know, okay, yes, they should have been scolded. She was right to exercise her authority as a Sonic employee to say, hey, clean those things up. But I do also, something I try and work on myself, it's not, rather, it is easy to just point the finger, you know, yell at somebody, well, how, how can you do that, uh, you know, fix it, uh, be gone. But I think we also need to consider, this is kind of a softball example, that, um, you know, how they got there, you know, why they thought it was okay to, after having received sort of a novelty gift of 20 ketchup packets for free, to throw them on the ground. Like, seriously, come on, people work here. Like, don't do that. Um, but rather than just condemn, uh, you know, I want to give them, not the benefit of the doubt maybe, but to commiserate that maybe there's something that could be better in their lives that maybe they just haven't learned that kind of, respect for your neighbor. And so um, I think you know what I mean, that uh, you know, I didn't have time to talk to them or figure out or, you know, know what's going on in their lives. Um, but rather than just plainly condemn themselves, oh, stupid kids doing things like, well, maybe there's a reason and uh, maybe, you know, hope for the better that maybe that was a learning experience and they can realize, you know, maybe I shouldn't do those kind of things anymore. Segway is something entirely different. Um, this is, Father Kelly's late night thoughts. I've been reading, well, I've been grateful to uh, Dr. John Hayden for letting me sit in on his early Christian thought class here at Swasu. Um, I'm not actually enrolled, but um, it's a small occupancy class and plenty of big room, so he's letting me sit in there. It's a good thing to enjoy. It's kind of like being back in seminary, but uh, I don't have to actually take the test. Uh, but we've been going through a book on... Um, well, it's a book on the whole New Testament and the Christian experience at the beginning, early centuries. Um, but in the couple early chapters, it's talking about how the canon of Scripture came to be formed, which is very fascinating. Uh, but it's also something that can be kind of uncomfortable if you're not used to hearing about that sort of thing. Because it's... It makes us wrestle with the messy process of how scripture came into being. And if you're used to, if you have this, a lot of, a lot of, people, a lot of us uh, have an implicit idea that the word of God, you know, is like the Bible itself, descended, on, descended from on high in a single volume, printed and nicely prepared. But it didn't come about that way at all. It was a process of several hundred years of having a whole lot of other scriptures too, and settling upon this particular list of books and you know, their particular editions. And so but the, this, this author is going through and explaining why it was not just a straightforward process. 
And um, he's you know giving various ways that scholars uh, engage with the scriptures. And he's very gracious, and he's not at all unchristian. Um, he's not, you know, he's very intent, very particular to remain neutral in the way he presents it. He says, I'm not going to uh, make any faith arguments. He is only presenting what the historical knowledge that can be gained from the scriptures as they are is. Um, he's not seeking to make any argument for or against faith, which is a, an appreciative uh, thing for him to do. Um, but he does, you know, it's, we're so used to reading about scripture in a context of the author being a person arguing for faith. And so I think it takes a little bit as a Christian to learn to listen in a way that is proper for the context, because we can learn from script. We can learn from what you might call a secular commentary on scripture. It's not there are many, many good things out there that we might not notice when we're reading it as faith. But when we engage with that as people of faith, even though it's a academic, secular exercise, that knowledge can help us in our spiritual activity. So uh, I want to share some some little notes I made from that. Um, you know, again, there's a lot of good stuff there. But these are the things that kind of caught my attention. Like, oh, well, hold on, let's think about that a little bit more. Uh, one thing he says is that. The most fruitful way to read the New Testament authors is to interpret them individually rather than collectively. Now, what he'd been getting at in this section is that uh, often we notice that the authors don't always correspond the way we would want them to. You know, the different books and you know, letters of the New Testament, um, they're written by different people at different times, in different communities. They do seem to have conflicts. If you line them up side by side, you're going to go, well, he says this here and this here and well, hold on. What you know? Which is the thing? And so, from a historian's perspective, I see what he means. That um, if you're trying to figure out like a history, you know, where did Saint Paul travel to, or what did Saint Luke say? If you try and mash them together into one consistent account, you're not going to get there. It's not going to. It's not going to line up. But you know, imagine someone you know, you know, maybe you and you and a friend have a series of letters of correspondence over time, and they have other people who they've corresponded with. If you took the information from everyone's letters and smashed them all together into one you know, spreadsheet of dates and names and places, it's not going to square necessarily, because just the way people write, it, it's different over time. Um, so as a historian, to take it only one book at a time makes sense. But we have to remember that that's only as a historian that it should be done that way. As a, person of, as a person of faith who's not looking for the play-by-play, but rather the, the spiritual realities inherent in the whole thing, then we do take it collectively. Because remember that the, the canon of Scripture was formed as a whole through the action of the church by the grace of God. So, you know, academically we might take it as an individual book, but spiritually that's actually part of the... Um, the force of the power of the authority of scripture is that it is a coherent whole. It all, it complements each other. It may not be exactly the same in every case, um, but it complements itself. It, it is consistent in, it all makes sense together. Let's just say it that way. Um, in later section on the, on the same idea, 
he's talking about the criteria for particularly determining uh, which manuscripts are most accurate because of course there's you know copying errors over time and that's kind of how to figure out well which one should we should we trust and he says that uh, manuscripts that are consistent in vocabulary writing style and uh, writing and style and ideas are the ones that we can kind of trust and kind of include together with the good ones which you know, yes very true uh, but that struck me as funny that in a you know, in a tangential way, at least, a literary criticism stumbles across the Catholic principle of the the integral whole of Scripture. Uh, yeah, it should all make sense together, is what they're saying. So th- those you know, copyists and translations, the ones that seem like weird and kind of you know maybe have a lot of errors, versus the ones that are more cons- consistent with the whole, are the reliable ones, and that's how we part of the process of having right the canon of Scripture the ones that are consistent with the whole picture. In this whole thing, though, as I at the beginning of this, of this little section, that it can make us nervous to talk about, you know, what is the construction of Scripture, and, and is it, are there messy points? There are messy points of, well, does it all line up? You know, what do we do with that? How do we talk about that? Well, what about this, and what about this? And it could lead somebody to question the whole thing and say, well, if you know, if this part seems unreliable or this part doesn't line up with the other part, then maybe just throw the whole thing out. And if all you have is scripture, I see how that could happen. But Catholics don't need to be threatened by literary criticism. Why? Because we are not sola scriptura. We do not believe in scripture alone. We have tradition. Now, maybe we have, maybe in reading, maybe in, you know, studying the scripture, especially in like a literary criticism kind of way, asking, you know, how did it get this way? What does it mean? Uh, You know, why was it written this way? Which again, can help our faith. Maybe we have to kind of, you know, shift our weight a little bit and um, reconsider, reevaluate how we consider what we do read. But because we have tradition as the whole other leg to stand on, we can wrestle in the church tradition while we kind of, you know, do some thinking about scripture. And then once we kind of settle that with scripture, then we have both legs again. But we don't, if, if we, to tinker is the wrong word, but we can ask questions, not, not doubt, but we can ask questions and kind of engage with and kind of wrestle with scripture in its, in its messiness, honestly, but not fall over and not fall away because we have that we have tradition to rely on. We have something, we have two parts of the foundation uh, to, you know, to fix one part of the foundation to, to navigate that doesn't leave us adrift because we have a whole other thing to hold on to. And so uh, praise God for all of that. And I'm sure as I do more reading of this textbook and spend more time in Dr. John's class, I bet we'll talk more about these sorts of things. Um, I'm not going to try and summarize his lectures. That's for him to do. Go take his class, come take his class. But I'll just give you maybe a little fascinating bits here and there. So, my goodness, we've made it to 28 minutes, and it is now 12.36 a.m. Praise God for that. What a fun time. You know, I've I've been meaning to do this yesterday, and didn't get around to it because the middle of weekend masses. um, And after midnight is not ideal. Obviously, 
but I wanted to make sure and do it because so often I have things pile up and like little ideas and notebooks and folders and papers pile up and you want to do the perfect thing. I think a lot of people have this where you, what is it? The, um, you sacrifice the good for the perfect. You want to do it just right and get everything lined up exactly the way it should be, but then nothing ever happens. So finally, um, from years of delaying and hemming and hawing around, getting it through my head, sort of, that it's better to just do something and get into practice that way. So forgive me if this was all over the place and made no sense whatsoever. I'm still getting my practice in, still trying to figure out how this works. Um, but it's more fun to do something and see how it goes than to do nothing all the way for perfection. So I hope this has been uh, enjoyable, beneficial, comical, if you just enjoy watching me fidget around here on my desk. But um, go watch a play. It's a fun thing to do. You don't have to take notes like I do. But um, yeah, get out of there. Get out of the usual context. Um, look at what's going on in the world. Ask people questions. Read a book, all kinds of good stuff out there. See y'all later. God bless.